This is Classical Ideas with Greg Soden. Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. The great thing about doing a show like this is that I am constantly inspired to stay a lifelong learner, even when topics are brand new or daunting. I have had so many amazing chances to grow and expand my views of the world simply by opening to blind spots in my own worldview and in history. Today's topic, which was a complete unknown to me until very recently, is the life and teachings of G.I. Gurdjieff, a Greek-Armenian man who lived from 1866 to 1949. Gurdjieff was an author of the notable Meetings with Remarkable Men, a choreographer and spiritual teacher whose life took him through Central Asia and into France, where he founded the Institute for the Harmonious Development of Man. Gurdjieff's teachings are well known through what is called the work and the movements, which are hundreds of sacred dances. Today's guest is Dr. Roger Lipsy, author of the brand new book, Gurdjieff Reconsidered, published by Shambhala on the 70th anniversary of Gurdjieff's death in 1949. Lipsy is a biographer, art historian, translator, and a longtime practitioner of the Gurdjieff teaching. As you can tell from this conversation, I was deeply challenged by this conversation because the life and teachings of Gurdjieff are utterly new to me, and I had some ideas that Dr. Lipsy helped me deconstruct and see in a new way. Learning while live on a microphone is deeply humbling, I must say, and I extend my gratitude to Dr. Lipsy for his patience in helping me understand a bit about the life and teaching of Gurdjieff. An episode like this is what being a lifelong learner is all about. So without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Roger Lipsy, author of the brand new Gurdjieff Reconsidered. Dr. Lipsy, thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm very glad to join you. So we are going to talk about the life of G.I. Gurdjieff today. and But before we get into that topic, um, I'm curious if you can just tell the listeners a little bit about your career and life. I'd be happy to do that. I... You know, I was guided by my parents to put a great deal of value, great concern into education of the kind that one can acquire from um, schools and university. And so the first emphasis in my life was was to be a real scholar, to be a learner. And that took me from grammar school in New York City, where I was born, to Phillips Exeter Academy in New Hampshire, and then to Yale, where I was an undergraduate, and then to New York University, where I did an MA and PhD in art history. 
uh, I have always been, since grammar school, a writer. I kind of recognized that I was a writer even then. And, um, and that has remained true throughout these many years. As people say, I am no longer young. Um, and I've published uh, a, a good many things um, since, uh, since I began, uh, since I you know, earned my PhD and began publishing properly. I would say that there have been two guiding lights in my, in my life. One was embodied in a, a great scholar, Ananda K. Kumaraswamy. Ananda Kumaraswamy was the, um, an art historian and philosopher, and particularly a religious philosopher and a researcher into the history and languages of religion, who was the curator of Indian and Muslim art at the Boston Museum of Fine Art for decades. He died in 1947, and his writings hugely influenced me. My first publication was um, a trilogy of works, two volumes of his papers on art and symbolism and metaphysics, and a one volume of my own on, uh, on his life. So from that point, I, was, I became a biographer without really knowing it. It was just my response to Kumaraswamy's um, uh, profoundly interesting life. And which had not been written biographically. So I was a biographer by the time of by my mid twenties. Then, the second guiding. Now let me just say something about Kumaraswamy. He was one of the great intellects of our time. Um, his grasp of traditional religious art and uh, the content of religious thought was simply phenomenal, and it was cross-cultural. So that training of mind, of perspective, had, um, has had a permanent influence on me, even though I don't believe all that he wrote. Um, uh, I have a somewhat different perspective, but in the end, there's a core of Kumaraswamy's um, universal regard for an understanding of religious art and religious thought that um, that abides within me. The second great influence I encountered in, which is the Gurdjieff and the Gurdjieff teaching, I encountered it when I was 14, though I didn't know I'd encountered it. I met in France where I was traveling with some other teenagers, um, American teenagers, I encountered a family in the south of France that I simply liked. There was something about them, something about their intelligence, their lightness, the way they related to each other, the things they thought about that just deeply appealed to me. So each summer after that, I would return as a, um, you know, I would pay something for the privilege of being en pension with them for a week or two each summer. What a fabulous opportunity for which I have to thank my parents um, that they tolerated this. <clears throat> and, uh, and 
one day when I was maybe 17, I asked the father in this family, I was already bilingual, um, uh, languages have come very easily to me. I asked the father in this family what it was, what was the secret, if there was a secret. And gradually through that um, question, we entered, we began a conversation that really became serious a year later. And he, um, he, uh, he pointed me toward a book, which I'm going to point you toward, Greg, and your listeners, which is P.D. Uspensky's uh, so-called In Search of the Miraculous. The subtitle is Fragments of an Unknown Teaching. And this book has, since its publication in 1949 or 50, become the most trusted, most comprehensive, uh, published um, introduction to the Gurdjieff teaching. It has points about it that people uh, resist or aren't interested in, uh, particularly in the cosmology side of the book. But the psychology is so brilliantly expressed that no one has ever surpassed it. So my mentor in France had me read that book, and I just devoured it. It was perfectly obvious that this was, it was as if I knew all this, but had never been able to formulate it or see it um, in sequence. It was like a, um, I can't say it would be presumptuous to say that I was remembering what I already knew, but there was something so fantastically deep and logical about the, particularly the psychological material in that book that, um, that I had no doubt that this was um, in some sense for me. Now I was then 18 and I'm, uh, and I found, thanks to my French mentor, I, I was able to begin participating in the work and study of the Gurdjieff Foundation of New York, which um, I was still at Yale at the time, but I would come down there once a week, and, and later I moved to New York. So, that, so that's influence number two. Kumaraswamy, you could say, was for mind for comprehensiveness of mind. I'm so grateful to him to this day. Um, and the Gurdjieff and the Gurdjieff teaching was, let's say, for being, for who you are, for how deep you can go in yourself, for how much of service you can be to others without um, tainting what you offer with all kinds of egotistic, self-serving concerns. I love that you're able to. I love that you're able to find these transformative uh, experiences when you're 18, and that you've been able to follow this path throughout an entire life, which has culminated in this new book that you have just put out, Gurdjieff Reconsidered: The Life, the Teachings, and the Legacy, which is out from Shambhala. So, if the listeners are like me, some people might not know who Gurdjieff is. So briefly for the listener, who is this, uh, this teacher, Gurdjieff, that you're referring to? Yeah, perhaps we ought to spell his name. Yeah, definitely. G-U-R-D-J-I-E-F-F. -F. And people have never really agreed on how to pronounce that name. It's an Armenian name, an Armenian transformation of a Greek name. 
um, Georgiades, uh, transformed to Gurdjieff. And I'll explain why that was so. He was born, we think, in 1866 in a little town then called Alexandropol in the Caucasus. He moved with his family to the city or little town, little city of Kars, K-A-R-S, which is now in eastern Turkey, but but has always had a um, sort of marvelously mixed culture of Orthodox Christianity, of um, Islam, of Yazidi presence was there, um, just everything you could possibly imagine uh, that would that would be um, gathered in this kind of confluence between East and West in Eastern, in what is now Eastern Turkey at the time it was Armenia. So born in 1866, educated in the Russian system, the Russian imperial influence had reached that far into the Caucasus at that time. So he was raised in, uh, educated in a Russian school by the time he was, who knows what, 10, he was speaking four languages. Um, the Greek spoken in part at home, Armenian spoken also at home, Turkish, which was the language all around him, and Russian, which was the language of instruction. Um, so that was his world. Uh, he, he was a born seeker. And the story of his search is in an autobiography he wrote called Meetings with Remarkable Men. It is reflected up to a point in a film of 1978 made by Peter Brook uh, called Meetings with Remarkable Men. And that film is, is worth seeing, though it's no substitute for the book, which is a wonderfully complex, rich, vivid um, narrative. Uh, Kirchhoff, as a born seeker, combined with a company of men and women whom he called the seekers of truth, and they went to many parts of the Eastern world, to Egypt, to Central Asia, Iran, as far as Tibet, I'm quite sure. Uh, in areas that were really dangerous for outsiders, but they somehow figured out how to travel safely and collected what he felt was missing or lost knowledge. Along the way, he became deeply interested in the sacred and folk dances and temple dances and dervish dances, Sufi dances that he encountered in in his travels. And he apparently had a photographic memory for um, for those dances. And later in, in Europe, he um, developed a system of dance called the movements, which um, is one of the, and now I'll use a Buddhist word, one of the skillful means available really quite uniquely in the Gurdjieff teaching 
for the development of presence and attention and for emotional learning. So he began, he returned to not quite the West, he, but he returned to Tashkent and opened a school there. But it was, but he went on rather quickly from Tashkent to Moscow and St. Petersburg, which were kind of the center of the world as far as he was concerned. All of, much of this region was under Russian imperial control. And, and Moscow and St. Petersburg at the time, it was 1912, seemed to be um, stable, of course was deeply cultured, um, an ideal place to open his school, which um, did begin there. It's there that he met P.D. Uspensky, who eventually wrote this um, unique book about the Gurdjieff teaching. It's also there that he met Thomas de Hartmann. Thomas de Hartmann was a conservatory music student, a pupil of Rimsky-Korsakov and other really great music masters, who was the leading, a leading uh, composer of his generation. And so that proved to be important because of the movements, and for one other reason, which I'll get to. The movements needed music, and he and Gurdjieff opened a collaboration as composers that resulted in some really very special music. Um, how to connect with that music? There are two, there are two um, branches of their music. One is music for movements. And some of that has been recorded, and you can find that. Your readers or, or your listeners can find that music um, just by searching for it. Um, and, and then, because of various circumstances, when they had completed writing music for movements, they began writing together over through the 1920s, when they were living outside of Paris. And I'll explain that. Um, they began writing what I call salon music. It was music for listening. It um, short, generally short compositions, some of them of surpassing beauty. And that music also has been very fully recorded at this point. Um, you can find various performers uh, offering, offering their understanding, their performances. Also, the music has been published in four volumes by Schott, S-C-H-O-T-T. -T. So among your listeners, if there are pianists, they'll be interested to um, obtain one or more of those volumes and explore this music directly. Uh, I can't speak highly enough of their, of their musical collaboration. When Russia collapsed, 1917, um, Gurdjieff and a small group of pupils began an emigration. It took them, it took them several years to complete an emigration whose destination was never terribly clear. At first, they went to the Caucasus, um, to the city of what was then called Tiflis, now Tbilisi, 
They spent a good year there, but the civil war between the white Russians and the, and the red Russians eventually reached Tiflis, and they moved on. They moved on to what was then called Constantinople, now Istanbul, and made their life there for a time and tried to open a school, but it also was unstable. And so they moved on to Western Europe, to Dresden in Germany. That didn't work out. And finally to um, the region of Paris, which was fully stable and where they settled and where they opened um, a an institute called the Institute for the Harmonious Development of Man. So we now have him in Paris, in his institute or near Paris. And he began, he also began visiting the United States. Um, and that's another whole story, but that in brief is, is who Gurdjieff is. I suppose one more thing I should say is that there was, is that I believe he was the first authentic guru in the West. There were some others. There were Padmasambhava, not Padmasambhava, but Yogananda, who was teaching um, yoga in a good way in California. There was Vivekananda, who traveled circa 1900, uh, who was a, a pupil of Ramakrishna. But the, the, the fact of a residential school overseen by a um, highly gifted altogether serious um, individual uh, rightly thought of as a guru, that was the priori, that was the Institute for the Harmonious Development of Man. And you've actually been, you've been inside the uh, Institute, haven't you? Uh, yes, I have. Tell me, uh, tell me a little bit about that day, because you write about that in the book where you managed to go inside what used to be the Gurdjieff Institute outside Paris when it was shuttered, right? Yeah. Uh, the, the, the Institute for the Harmonious Development of Man existed for really 10 years. It closed because of the Great Depression. There was simply no financing even to pay for the coal to use, that they used to eat the priore. Uh, by the way, I use the word priore because the original name of the manor house where the institute um, made its home was the priore des bas loges. Priore just means priory. That's our American, English word for priore. Well, it's a, I call it a manor house. Some people call it a chateau, but it's, it's, you know, it's not really a great big chateau with towers and things. It's just an enormous house and um, with something like 50 rooms um, with beautiful, um, well, what, formerly beautiful um, large rooms, salon, dining space, etc. in the ground floor. And upstairs on the next floor, there were some large bedrooms. And then on the top third floor, there were um, lots and lots of small rooms off a long corridor. At the time, my wife and two friends and, and I joined, uh, visited it. It was, as you said, shuttered. And, um, and it wasn't obvious how to 
visited, there was no one around. It was a kind of um, derelict building, really. At one point, it had been a an old folks' home, but that also that function was long since abandoned. And so we were sitting on a bench in the kind of large, rather neglected park around this manor house and thinking, can we visit it? I mean, we're here to visit it. And we did find um, a board that um, could be easily moved. And so we went inside and there were sort of two, there was a map in our minds, which was the Priore as it had been in his, in the years when he lived there with his pupils. And that map had a, a salon with a great big piano where the new music was played almost nightly and lovely um, French furniture. And all of that map was in our minds. But what we saw was empty empty rooms uh, that the fireplace had been torn out because it had some value. And so there was a hole where the fireplace had been in the salon. And there was the, 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 the basic skeleton was there, the, the wide curving stairs from the first floor to the next floor. And they entered the history of literature and of the Gurdjieff teaching because Catherine Mansfield, the short story writer who's really part of the canon of literature now, spent the last three months of her life as a pupil of Gurdjieff at the Priore. And the long curving um, uh, stairway, really quite a noble stairway, is the one that she had um, had been climbing when she had a um, um, began to cough blood. She was she had a fatal tuberculosis, and she began to cough blood. And within a few hours, she was dead. So that stairway reminds me reminded me very much of this wonderful author, Catherine Mansfield. Catherine Mansfield's notes on the her life at the Priore, her letters, as I write in my book. Jeff reconsidered are among the most vivid record we have of the life there. So one more element of exploration was we went up to the kind of narrow corridor with on the third floor with lots of little rooms left and right. And it looked, it looked like a little house of horrors is, is what it looked like. All of this thick white paint was, <laughs> was curling off and you know it looked like a, something you'd find in a fun house not in a in a stately manner and i knew what should have been underneath that thick paint and so we snapped off some of these tongues of thick white old paint and found exactly what we were looking for which was a um, fresco treatment that had been done by um, a very expert painter in 1929 and that I knew from, from the literary record was probably still there, and it was. And that was somehow a sense of connection. Wonderful. 
So you've studied the life and teachings of Gurdjieff for more than 50 years at this point, which you write, which you write about in the book. And to me, as a brand new um, learner about the life of Gurdjieff, he's very much an enigma to me still. So today, I kind of want to talk a little bit about what is known as the work, the movements, as you mentioned earlier, and something called the fourth way and a little bit of symbolism. I'm interested in how Gurdjieff helped students see their own human possibility in new ways to live in specific moments and to just be, to regenerate our lives. And a quote of his is, to live in your body again. So after 50 years of you studying Gurdjieff, what is the work to you and what does it bring to your life as a student? I'd like to start in a slightly different place than your question suggests. Sure, that's fine. Why would one come to a teaching, any teaching, not just the Gurdjieff teaching? Why would a teaching seem important, whether it's Zen or Tibetan Buddhism or mindfulness or centering prayer or the Gurdjieff teaching? Why would something that lies somewhat outside the mainstream of our so-called American culture be meaningful and attractive to a person. And I think that there are, there are several ways, there are several sort of reasons why one would take such a step. And I want to include also in, in that list I just made the uh, psychological um, disciplines, be it um, cognitive psychology or, or Jungian analysis, or there's a whole realm of, of pretty marvelous things, um, pretty marvelous disciplines that one can enter into. But why would one step toward that out of one's, wherever one is? One reason is that you have a hurt you have a disappointment in what your life has been, in who you are, a feeling that this can't be all, this is surely not all, um, and where there's a disappointment with one's own functioning, with the way one relates to oneself, with the way one relates to others, with the way one relates to love, um, there's a question, is, is, is this who I am? Is this, is this, am I condemned to be this? Um, and to, and for however I, life goes on, I'm, this is my basis, this is my identity, is this all? So there's a hurt. And someone who's hurt in, so to speak, just the right places, but who hasn't lost hope, would turn toward a teaching, be it Jungian analysis or Gurdjieff or all sorts of things are available that represent a step away from what one is, a step toward something richer, something more satisfactory. There can also be an aspiration, a hope. Some people, I've, I've had the privilege of knowing a few, had experiences when they were children 
that were so open, so beautiful, so integrated with the universe or whatever, however they would put it, so uplifting, so encouraging, so reassuring, that they've never forgotten it. And such people, I'm not one of them, such people come toward a teaching with the um, half-formulated, maybe not even formulated longing to understand what that was and to return to it. To return to it as an adult, not, not as a child to whom things are done, to whom experiences happen, but as an adult who, who can, who is, who's, has the potential to be a seeker and a receiver. Because certainly one of the um, uh, requirements of a proper seeker is to be a proper receiver. It's not all outgoing. Some of it is incoming, much of it. So either a hurt or a hope. And there's a third thing, which is a relationship. You meet someone that just means the world to you. You feel that they represent the, the right way to be, the fully human way to be, that they have minds and hearts and even bodies that, that are um, somehow much more fulfilled than oneself and yet not um, out of reach, a relationship. And that was a good part of my experience is that I met that family I told you about. Mm-hmm. And I thought, I want to be like them. Whatever that means, I want to be like them. That was the way my 17 and 18-year-old mind formulated it. And might, I might put it a little differently now. So a hurt, a hope, a relationship. And then one enters the stream of a teaching and I want to say something here that um, I've thought about a good deal lately, which is we do have now in our truly beloved America uh, a whole workshop culture. You can do a two or three day workshop or a one week um, retreat um, in almost any field. And that workshop culture provides something like tastes or samples of whatever the discipline is. And I guess it allows one to, some of these workshops allow one to make the choice to continue to go more deeply, to become a pupil, a student of that discipline. And some of them are just one-off kinds of uh, uh, experiences. The Gurdjieff teaching is not one of those. The Gurdjieff teaching is a does call for a multi-year commitment. And I remember when I was maybe in my late twenties, speaking with um, in a meeting of Gurdjieff people that my particular mentor was present in. And I said something like, when do we graduate? 
is there, you know, like I don't expect a graduation ceremony, but surely there is something like a graduation. And he found that so amusing. It was like the ultimate misunderstanding. Um, and I was amused by his amusement. But I see the point, which is there are teachings that I wouldn't dare to say are lifelong commitments. That's been so for me. But there are teachings that require a lot. They're not designed for complacent people. They're not designed for um, dilettante approach. And they the, certainly the Gurdjieff teaching doesn't ask it, it, it doesn't ask anything in the early years that one isn't willing to give. It never asks anything that one isn't willing to give. But there's certainly a conception in the Gurdjieff teaching that the search for being, that the deepening of being, that the awakening of mind, heart, and body insofar as it will be possible for, for oneself in this lifetime is a long and serious engagement. What lifts it from being drudgery and everything, by the way, can be drudgery. I mean, everything has a drudgery aspect to it. Even doing a podcast has a drudgery aspect to it. But what lifts it is the inspirational nature of some of the teachers, the extreme beauty and challenge of the movements for as long as one is able-bodied and able to participate in them, the extreme beauty of the music, which is another way of encoding the, the teaching. The teaching is encoded in that music, if one listens carefully. So there are, there are some beautiful elements. There are some challenging elements. There are some long, long relationships that allow this Gurdjieff teaching, and I would say any proper teaching, to be um, a long-term engagement. And that is what it is. You mentioned the movements, and I have been captivated by watching the movements or like the sacred dances. Um, I've been watching YouTube videos of the movements now for days, and they're so fascinating. They're so elegant and simple, and the music is so engrossing. Um, it's almost hypnotizing in a way. And I know that the movements are also memorized. And I notice a lot of similarities to something um, within the Mevlevi Dervish um, dances and spinning that people would associate with them. And so I encourage anyone listening to go watch videos of the movements. Um, can you tell me a little bit about the personal experience of doing the movements and how they help lead you towards that notion of being that you referred to? Like, just describe an experience of doing the movements, because it's so interesting. One of the most compelling components to me, personally. Well, before um, responding to that specific question, let me say that 
the um, the YouTube movements films that you would see are not necessarily um, all that good. The Gurdjieff's primary pupil, a woman named Jeanne de Salzman, who was by training a Dalcroze teacher initially, and who was really a dance master, a dance mistress, who in later, who after Gurdjieff's death made seven or eight films of the movements, which are privately held. Um, that is the real thing, the real. And what you see on YouTube may or may not be very authentic. Um, and there are some YouTube things, I think, that are just totally invented. Um, there's quite a lot of counterfeiting around the Gurdjieff teaching. Um, so I can't be confident of what you've seen. And when you say that they're simple, I um, couldn't possibly agree. The, the movements can be very, very complex, very demanding, even intellectually, just to know where you are, what to do next, where to go next. So please don't be too satisfied with what you've seen. No problem. On YouTube. Um, and in some ways, it's it's an uncorrectable difficulty because the, the Gurdjieff foundations and societies around the world, which were, uh, which are a network formed by Jean de Sossman in, in after Gurdjieff's death, which was 1949, she lived to be 101. So she had about 40 years to um, create this network of foundations and societies and support them um, in a, with her unique uh, presence and, and, uh, refined intelligence. Uh, they are the depositories of the, of the movements. And the movements are not distributed, not um, publicized by these foundations and societies. Uh, on the premise that the movements are part of the teaching. And an integral part of the teaching. And if the movements were to be um, publicized and, and, and spread all over, they are the easiest thing to detach from the teaching and turn into a separate discipline. And that is really not what Gurdjieff intended for them. So there's a kind of uncorrectable issue, which is that in order to really practice the movements, really come to know them over the years, and there's something like 200 separate movements, which means that there's a long study ahead and a deeply interesting and transformative study, I would say, for those who enter a foundation or a society. Um, but that's the way to learn the movements, um, to encounter the movements, is within a foundation or a society that's, that's a legitimate one. Um, and in terms of legitimacy, as I say, there are a lot of versions of the Gurdjieff teaching um, that are not, to my mind, um, uh, really uh, what they could and should be. So I, I would say to your readers or to your listeners, to if, if they're interested in reaching a 
um, in making contact with a foundation or society, I would suggest reaching out through the Gurdjieff Foundation of New York website, to um, which has a, a contact um, field, to just to make contact with with the authentic um, teaching, and that would be step one. Excellent. Um, so movements, they are, you know, there's a series of, is it six so-called obligatories, which are the first movements that Gurdjieff taught at the Priore, at the Institute in Par- outside Paris, and which have remained the sort of opening curriculum for um, participants in the movements. And the very first one, the first obligatory, is, um, unlike what you said, Greg, is not simple. It, it, um, it relies on uh, an acute sense of balance. It relies on uh, uh, movements of arms and legs and eventually of head that... Um, that are potentially destabilizing, but that can be held in a very calm, um, in a very calm, steady way as one studies how, as one studies the movement. The music for it is just so majestic, um, and uh, and that's stage one. That's the first movement, and it's not easy or simple. Um, and on from there. I guess that I should take a moment to apologize by the when I misspoke and said simple. Uh, yes, on behalf of the cosmos, your your apology is accepted. Thank you, sir. <laughs> so, um, what what more can I tell you? The you asked what the experience is. You know, you come into a class, it's a big white, you're in a big white hall usually um, with no furniture, it has a piano and a few chairs. And you sit against the wall, sometimes on cushions of one sort or another, and you collect yourself and very quietly, eventually the teacher stands and the class forms in rows six across usually and three or four deep. Uh, and quite typically there will be a, an exercise offered, not a movement as a kind of warm up. There's a whole art of, of exercises. Um, and as well, the music at the piano for um, an exercise is improvised. So there is a whole um, tradition of improvisation on modes and minor keys that is passed along from generation to generation, pianist to pianist. It goes back to Thomas de Hartmann at the piano in the Institute in the 1920s. Um, then eventually uh, the, the teacher will either teach um, parts of a movement so that one can study it in parts or will call for a movement that has already been studied that can be practiced as a whole. And what 
is going on inside you is on the one hand um, a you come to be present but at the same time as you come to be present which means physically present emotionally present mentally present um, at the same time you experience the obstacles to that kind of clarity and presence and that is um, and so there's a zone there of struggle, of struggle with oneself. And, and one learns to become um, as resourceful as possible in uh, working toward what Madame de Salzman once called total presence. It is not a... Um, the movements vary from very slow and beautiful prayers to very rapid, highly energetic, uh, let's call them dervish movements, going far beyond what you mentioned, which is the turning of the, of the, the Sufi, Mevlevi style turning. Uh, but whatever it is, whether it's very, very vigorous or very prayerful and slow, um, it creates the opportunity for this struggle toward total presence. And, and one experiences that. And of course, one of the obstacles in a movements class where something more difficult is being taught is, um, is making mistakes. And so one learns to make mistakes, um, so to speak, um, uh, gracefully. And one learns not to start lamenting over one's um, inability um, because there isn't time to lament over one's inability. There's the next gesture in the pattern of a dance coming along. And if you're lamenting your inability, you are you might as well just sit down and have a cup of tea or something instead of be in the class. So there's a whole discipline, inner discipline, as well as an outer discipline. And there's one more thing, which is um, that Gurdjieff said, and in a, a book of his talks called Views from the Real World, which is really invaluable, I recommend it to your listeners. Um, he talks about the value of the movements as one of the values is to invite us to be in unhabitual postures. Um, he says that our emotional lives are limited and tied to very habitual physical postures, so that when a movement, which invariably they do, um, moves us out of our habitual uh, sequence of postures into an absolutely different um, uh, physical world, gestural world, um, emotional learning begins. And that emotional learning also has to do with the music. Um, the music, as I said, is encodes the teaching. And, um, and so there you are. You're moving, you're dancing. Um, you are struggling for your attention, struggling toward total presence, um, enriched by 
the impact of this music enriched by the exploration of non-habitual postures and sequences of movements, enriched also by the quality of cooperation among the whole class, because this is not solo. This is not Taiji, um, for example. This is a, there are coordinated dances, pattern dances that require the utmost attention to your comrade, to your left and right and front and behind. So for able-bodied people, um, this can be and generally is a highly valued experience and a transformative one. And as in many things in the, you know, in generally speaking in teachings, there's been this sort of issue about is, is, is awakening or enlightenment um, gradual or sudden? The Zen teaching has really gone into this um, very thoroughly. And the, from my point of view, the, the, the response based on experience is that it's both a movement class from week to week um, will have moments of astonishing clarity, um, astonishing emotional clarity, the discovery of qualities of feeling you didn't know you even had in you, um, uh, of a, um, a joy to be a physical creature uh, that you didn't know you had in you, etc. So there are these sudden, I would say that's sudden. Suddenly you're there. Suddenly you're real. Suddenly you have a natural sense of joy. Suddenly you're yourself. Um, and then from week to week, month to month, year to year, something happens. And you, you'd be presumptuous and foolish to say it's enlightenment. That's a very big word. But something is happening as a result of the overall influence of the Gurdjieff teaching, including the movements. And so, yes, that's where I would end that discussion. There's a phrase in the book that you mentioned that you really enjoyed, and I enjoy it too. And that is the notion of joining the history of something. And, you know, whether it be a group, an organization, or a teaching. So all listeners to this are a part of the history of something, depending on what they do. So when you meet new folks who wish to join the history of Gurdjieff, what do you notice about, um, like, the people on their path or what they're looking for? Or what do you, advice do you give them? My general sense, based on experience and a kind of um, love of humanity that I suppose has come to me as I've grown older, is that people need to find where they belong. And someone who's searching, someone who has a hurt or a hope or a relationship and who is searching is 
needs to find where he or she belongs. And some people belong in a, a deep psychological discipline. Some people belong in a monastery. I have a lot of friends in monasteries. Um, I respect what they're doing. Some people belong in Zen. Some people belong in Tibetan Buddhism. Some people belong in parishes that have a rich life, be it Orthodox Christian or Catholic or Jewish. Some people belong in the Gurdjieff world, and they'll find their way. And I hope they will find their way. Is anything still mysterious about Gurdjieff to you as a longtime, um, you know, studier of the teachings? Uh, certainly. I mean, I've I know the Gurdjieff literature cold. I've known practically every student, direct student of Gurdjieff. I've studied with many of them. Um, that was the good fortune of being part of my generation um, is that there were so many still still uh, alive and teaching. Um, I've thought so very much about Gurdjieff. I've written a book about him now, published just yesterday, February 5th. Uh, and yet, of course, there's a mystery. Um, he, uh, there was something about him that was um, so lofty and on occasion so earthy that uh, we'll never know really quite where he came from. Um, we'll never know what his inner life was. It was another thing. It was one example I've used in the book in Gurdjieff Reconsidered is how the students of Pythagoras, the legendary Pythagoras, referred to him. They said there is men and there are women and there's a third thing. And that third thing was their teacher, Pythagoras. <laughs> and I would say the same. There are men and there are women and there's a third thing, G.I. Gurdjieff. Well, Dr. Lipsy, I have really enjoyed reading the book, and I almost feel as if I've gone out of order with studying the life of Gurdjieff, because the first book I've ever read by him is called Gurdjieff Reconsidered, so I never considered him in the first place, and now I'm reconsidering him. And all the titles that you've given and offered and the suggestions are compelling paths for me to, you know, continue to study a little bit. And I uh, I really appreciate your time today as well. And I recommend the book, Gurdjieff Reconsidered, The Life, The Teachings, The Legacy, which is out now, as you mentioned. So congratulations on the publication of the book. Um, how many years in the making was this book? Um, you know, when you ask that of an author, <laughs> I tell you two and a half years plus more than 50. Excellent. <laughs> 
Well, um, Dr. Lipsy, do you have any uh, places where people can uh, find your work if they are looking to learn more about what it is that you do? Do you have any, like a website or any sources or anything you'd like to direct their attention towards? Uh, yes. No, I'm, I'm findable. So if anybody wants to find me, you can find me. It's, it's through, um, so let's just consider I'm findable. What I want your listeners to, to be aware of is just a few books that are treasures. One of them is by a French author named René Domal, D-A-U-M-A-L. The book is called Mount Analog. It is an unfinished novel. He, like so many in his generation, uh, had TB and died of it at a relatively young age. So the the novel is unfinished, but it's a total masterpiece. It's a a transposition of his experience in the Gurdjieff work into a uh, richly imagined um, uh, sort of journey toward a mountain called Mount Analog. And I, I really recommend it, that people um, get to know that. It's not well enough known. I recommended Uspensky's book, <coughs> published in, in, in English as In Search of the Miraculous. Um, I think, uh, and then I've recommended Meetings with Remarkable Men by Grudjeff. I've recommended Views from the Real World. I think those books lay down um, a first layer for uh, people who are interested in in Gurdjieff and the teaching. Wonderful. I I appreciate your time today, and thank you so much for teaching me about uh, the life of G.I. Gurdjieff and your new book, Gurdjieff Reconsidered. Thank you. I've enjoyed this, uh, this conversation, Greg. Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is composed and performed by Derek Strybick. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you like this show, please rate it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email me at classicalideas at outlook.com or find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash classical ideas podcast. Thanks so much for listening.